This. This. Is URN. Oh, no way. No, no way. You cannot do that, Ben Stokes. That is remarkable. That is one of the greatest catches of all time. Hello and welcome to Sticky Wicket, the only podcast that thinks Darren Stevens should be opening the bowling in the ashes after making Marnus Labuschagne his bunny. As usual, I'm joined by Dom. How are you, mate? Um, I've got a bit of a cold, but I'm really excited for today. So I've decided to get out of bed and start doing some work. But yeah, like I said, very excited for today, mate. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, this should be a, another good interview and podcast for you guys, because today we're lucky enough to be joined by Jared Kimber. Jared is a writer, commentator and analyst. He's worked for Five Live, Five Live, ESPN, Cricket Scotland, Melbourne Stars, as well as many other teams and companies. Jared, thank you for joining us. How are you? Yeah, no, happy to be here. Yes, there's so much to talk about in this interview, but first we're going to start with our usual URN Super Over. This is six quick five questions that we ask all our guests so let's go. Um, so number one, Jared, which athlete from any other sport would you like to see play cricket? Ooh, oh, that's, that's about the first hour of the podcast, if you really <laughs> want to get into that. Uh, I am going to go with, ooh, I'm going to go with Dikembe Mutombo, the NBA player who was the best shot blocker in history, uh, because I like the idea of a seven foot player who blocks a lot of shots. <laughs> <laughs> a Lord's Test Fifer or a Lord's Test 100? Uh, Fifer. Fair enough. That was a quick, quick answer. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, what has been your favourite match that you've seen live? Oh, I mean, uh, there has been so many. I'm try- Off the top of my head, I am trying to think of... I suppose I was at Afghanistan's first ever World Cup game. Um, and even though they lost, that was an incredible game. Uh, so maybe historically and everything else, it was that. But uh, uh, th- there was also when um, Sri Lanka beat uh, England in Headingley uh, off that was second last ball. That was incredible as well. But yeah, um, I'll probably go with Afghanistan. That's, a, that's the first Afghanistan answer we've had on this podcast. <laughs> if you're walking out to bat for Australia, what song would you want to walk out to and why? These are, these are not quick-fire questions, guys. <laughs> this, is, this, this, this requires a lot of analysis. I mean... I suppose as a joke, it'd be funny to walk out to like Creep from Radiohead um, uh, or, you know, something like, you know, Arsehole by Dennis Leary or something. Um, uh, oh, geez. There's, there's a corn song and I've forgotten the name of it, which has like this bang and it has this banging line. And I know a lot of Australian cricketers in the 90s listened to corn and I always thought it, had the, it was the best walk on music. I've heard like boxers use it and wrestlers use it, but no cricketer ever used it, sadly. So uh, it would probably be something that would uh, annoy everyone would be my choice. Um, some, something is around. Maybe some, there's, a, there's a great song called Cows With Guns by Dana Lyons. Maybe I'd, I'd get that. Very niche, some of these answers here. Um, what three essentials uh, are there of cricketing tea for you? So I only ever took one kind of food to my cricketing teas, which you can't get in the UK, but they're like lamington slices and they're like a little cake with like, I don't know, some sort of chocolatey gunk around them. Uh, and that's all I ever took. Uh, I was not interested in eating during a game. Uh, I don't even eat chocolate, but you could get them at any service station on the way to the ground. So that's what I did every time. So as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's all you need. <laughs> One last uh, of the super over. Would you rather be in a Lord's, uh, sorry, would you rather be in the Lord's Pavilion for a test match or the Holly Stand for finals day? Uh, why would you want to be in the Lord's Pavilion? Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm not sure I'd want to be in the Holy Stand for finals day either, uh, if we're being honest, but I suppose that's probably... What one would give me better anecdotes? Ooh. <laughs> that, that, could, that could go five sets there. Um, uh, I think it would be funnier. I'd be able to make fun of the Lord's members more, wouldn't I? So I'm going to go with that just for the anecdotes. And by the barest of margins, Jared finishes the URN Super over. So, Jared, let's start at the beginning. How did you get into cricket? Uh, I didn't really get into cricket. There's no, there's no like uh, major part of my origin story. My dad uh, uh, was playing cricket uh, the week that I was born, and I was taken to my first game because he didn't want to miss a set day um, of playing cricket. So, uh, it's not like there was any, uh, you know, huge moment in my life that I can track back. I can, there are obviously moments I remember early on that probably made me really like the sport. Um, my whole family was involved, though, but 
But there were little things like I went to my first Sheffield Shield game and the first ball of the game, Mike Whitney came in. I don't know if you guys remember Mike Whitney, but he had this like big, he almost had like a white throat. It was like this big curly hair, left arm fast bowler, and he stormed in for his first ball and fell over. Um, and I thought that was pretty funny. Um, and uh, yeah, and it was just, it was just a part of our life. I, you know, we would, I would go to the cricket club on Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays and Sundays. And then when I played uh, probably an extra day of the week as well. Uh, so from a very young age, it was just what I did. Almost indoctrinated it into the sport. Right. As a Nottingham based podcast, we want to hear our guest memories of Trent Bridge. Jared, do you have any memories of Trent Bridge? I can see it literally through my window at uni, but do you have any memories of Trent Bridge? Yeah, it's one of my favourite cricket grounds in the world, actually. Um, and certainly one of my favourite cricket grounds in England. Um, I, for whatever reason, I think it might have been, it was, the sec- it was the first test ground outside of the Oval that I ever got press accreditation for. So I did a full game. It was Nottingham, Hampshire, I think, um, in 2008 when they were playing off uh, um, to win. Remember, there was like three games going on at the same time where all three teams could win the county championship. Um, and that was, the, that was the one I headed to because I think at that stage we thought, um, uh, you know, one of the winners was a uh, chance of coming from there. Uh, and just being able, you know, when you're, especially when a county ground like that, you'd be able to sort of just walk around and do whatever you want. I also remember uh, when I first became editor of Spin uh, Magazine, I didn't have an accreditation at that stage. And um, George Dobell told the guy on the gate to, uh, when someone walked up to the gate who looked the least likely person ever to be the editor of a cricket magazine, uh, that that would be me and I'd be allowed <laughs> in. Um, but yeah, I think um, they used to, I used to go to the store quite a bit. You used to be able to get some discounted stuff. So I've probably got some old not shirts um, around. Um, I remember randomly, I must have been there for the World Cup and uh, Ricky Ponting was um, uh, feeding balls to Marcus Stoinis. Never has a, you know, a bigger gap of divide between a coach and a player uh, <laughs> be more evident than Ricky Ponting feeding balls to, um, to, to Marcus Stoinis. But yeah, I've got a lot of just sort of weird memories like that of the ground. I've, I've spent, a, I think of, of the grounds outside of London, I feel like I've spent more time there because I've been to a few, you know, T20 games and, um, and up there. I, I just really like it. So I try and stay just as close as possible so that I can walk to the ground. So I walk up the canals sort of on my own uh in the morning and uh and go there and you know also so i can skip hooters <laughs> although i did want i mean <laughs> if you guys are nottingham based uh cricket thing, you do have to talk about hooters just so so when i you know we don't have any hooters in australia that i'm aware of um, and so when i moved over to the uk you know got my job and me and my friend sam who we ended up making the film together and, and, and working a lot with espn together we were like, how fun will it be to go to Hooters, right? <laughs> like all I knew about Hooters really was like Adam Sandler films, right? And so, <laughs> I don't know, it must have been, when the test probably started on a Thursday or Friday. So it was like a Wednesday afternoon. We went to all the press conferences and then we walked down to Hooters um, to have the meal. And it was by far the most depressing hour of my life. The food was terrible. Uh, I felt sorry for everyone in there. They were like families there eating and i was just like what what is going on here uh so there you go those are my memories of of Trent bridge sounds like there could be a youtube video made from all of those memories particularly hooters <laughs> memories i'm sure um and then on on youtube you, you started your channel last year and you sort of post analytical videos ranging from ben dunk and his t20 t20 career to king legend rahul's form to power play specialists um, why did you decide to start a YouTube channel and how did you, how did you decide on the topics? So I, I think 2018 and 2019, I think sometime in early 2019, for a bunch of different reasons, I lost about five jobs in cricket. So Melbourne Stars changed uh, uh, who was running them. So I lost my job there. St. Lucia Stars, they changed ownership, although I was fired before they changed ownership, to be fair. Uh, I, I was supposed to be working for a bunch of other, uh, you know, I was supposed to be working in the European T20 League. That ca- that got cancelled. Um, uh, and what was the other one? Oh, the Bangladesh Premier League. I had a job there and uh, the uh, BCB took over the league and kicked out all the owners. So that was fun. So I basically came out of that only really with uh, TalkSport work. And, uh, and, and so into 2019, 2020, I had talk sport work, but that was enough to get me through. And then this thing called COVID happened. I don't know if you guys have been keeping up with it on the news. Um, and early 2020, I kind of found myself completely unemployed. There's no cricket being played. I did a little bit of freelance for Crick Info, a little bit for The Guardian and some other places as well, but there wasn't really any work out. And a friend of mine called Aria, who 
uh, worked with me for Crick Info for years. Uh, he had um, set up Akash Chopra's YouTube channel. And for, I don't know when he set up Akash's channel, but for about three years, he kept saying, you should be doing this. And I kept saying, ah, I'm doing okay. I, I don't need a YouTube channel. I got enough stuff, you know, uh, wasting my time rather than this. And then when COVID happened, I had no stuff wasting my time. I had no employment at all. I did a little bit of work for TalkSport um, uh, and that was about it, um, as long, along with a little bit of freelance writing. And so we came up, the original idea was I, I already, I'd always planned to do a podcast network, but when I was so busy with all this other work, I couldn't actually put these podcasts together. I just didn't have the time. And so when COVID happened, I was like, great, I'll start podcast, me and 4 billion other people. And uh, at that stage, and RA just kept saying to me, look, just give me the podcast and I'll put them up on YouTube. And so, you know, I, the first time I was, I was probably posting to YouTube in 2006 and I think YouTube started in 2005. So, uh, you know, I was an OG YouTube person. Um, and um, even in 2008, 2009, I was putting some cricket stuff up. 2010, 2011, I got hired from working on YouTube essentially by Crick Info. And I was like, look, Ari, I'm, look, I'm not being a dick, but I don't want to put podcasts up because uh, I'm not that, you know, I'm, I don't know if that, that will work. And I don't want to just sit in front of a camera talking for an hour um, about stuff. I'm just not interested in that. And he said, oh, you know, maybe we can like take one of your historical cricket podcasts and we could make it, we can just animate it. I was like, dude, if you can do that and I don't have to do any work, I'm all in. Um, <laughs> I'll start a YouTube channel tomorrow. And so, but at the same time, when we started talking about that, he sent me something. I forget the name is, I think it might be called Whiteboard Football or uh, Blackboard Football or something like that. He sent me a link to them and he was like, you know, what about if you did like analytics stuff? Um, and no, sorry, he didn't even send it about analytics. He just sent it going, what do you think of this um, as, as an idea? Like, this is how we can animate. And I was like, wait a minute, I can just do this? Like, and my face doesn't even need to be on it? I'm in. Uh, and then we, we sold a bunch of them to Crick Info and that gave us enough money to sort of set up the YouTube channel. And then uh, from there, we just put stuff up every now and again. Like, you know, uh, sometimes we would spend a lot of time. There's a, there's a Josh Butler video that we will never finish, which is about an hour long, which is the entire, it's like a documentary on Josh Butler. And it's endlessly fascinating, but it did almost stop Ari's entire company from functioning. Um, so, so much detail was put into that video. Uh, but most of the other videos, I think we've managed to get on the site. And then um, when, when I started, uh, when the Australia India came up, uh, I had like a podcast network. I was writing my own emailers at that stage. And with the YouTube, I was just like, well, when I had some spare time, I'd make a video. And they just got very popular. So we just kept making them. As far as how I come up with the ideas, it's, for me, it's just writing. It's just like, what is an idea that is good for writing? And if I can find a way to make it work on a video, I put it together with a video. Um, the only thing that's probably been different is that, you know, now we started doing some live videos over at YouTube. And um, so there is more of me actually sitting in front of a camera for an hour and talking, sadly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, you know, we're trying to build it up so we can make it into a proper production so that I can hire people and, uh, and that we can do it properly. Because, uh, you know, the, the Ben Dunk video that took about four months to get online. And it's not that it took four months to put together. It's just that it took me maybe a week and a half to write it, um, but it took Aria so long to put it together. Plus we, we, were, we were trying things that just kept crashing his computers. I think he had to buy a new computer to make that happen. Um, and, and so we, what we need is just full-time staff to be able to work on them. And we could do 12 Ben Dunks a year and we could do a bunch of other smaller stuff and we can get stuff going at the moment. So right at the moment, you know, I've got Aria working on one big project on New Zealand cricket, which again is probably going to be about an hour long. We'll have to split that up into three parts just to get it online. Um, uh, yeah, Muku, who's another guy who's working uh, with us now, he's doing something on old T20 players and I'm doing something on Mustafa Zaraman. And that's what we're kind of trying to do at the moment is trying to like churn all these things out. But yeah, finding ideas has never been a problem for me, uh, to be fair. It's uh, finding the time and the people who can help me actually get them online. That is usually my biggest problem. Mm. Do you think we'll ever see the, the Joss Butler video? Because he's probably one of the most fascinating cricketers out there. And I know that there's quite a good story about him at school. I think one of the coaches tried to change his technique in year 12 so this sort of penultimate year and he didn't make a run the whole season. He went back to it in year 13 and topped the whole country's leading run scorers or something for, for, for county cricket or something like that. 
Um, I I don't know. We've got a fair chunk of it. I'd have to talk to the the production team to see how much of it we can actually be salvaged. It really did. It did churn out a, an absolute computer. We, there's so many layers that we put on our videos. They are, you know, it's almost like trying to put, it doesn't look like animation completely, although parts of it obviously are animated, but the, the amount of layers we put on, uh, it's, it's incredible. And it does actually churn out the computers. And so once you get over about 20, 25 minutes, it becomes impossible to actually export it properly, let alone um, make it work. And then if you've got one glitch in it, the whole thing goes, uh, we might use some of the Joss Butler one I'm um, going ahead. Uh, if, if, if the channel keeps going the way it is in the last, I don't know, four, four and a half months, it basically went from, I don't know, 3000 subscribers to, I don't know, 30,000 subscribers. So if it keeps going that way and, uh, you know, we've talked to some people about bringing funding in and we've started having advertisers on the site, if we can get to that, the Joss Butler video might be something we can do again. Although it's perfectly possible that if I ever ask Aria to do it again, he will, uh, uh, you know, pull down my channel and delete all the files. <laughs> so that sounds like quite a big, almost motion picture. And you've obviously done your work with movies. You um, had the award-winning film Death of a Gentleman available on Amazon Prime. It's a documentary, if you didn't know, about the governance of cricket by the ICC's Big Three, you and Sam Collins travelled around the world following the Australian batsman Ed Cowan before uncovering this conspiracy about the Indian Cricket Board, English Cricket Board and Cricket Australia. It's a fantastic watch, would really recommend it. And whilst I was ill, I watched it in bed. Uh, but it took four years to make a monumental effort from both you and Sam. What was it like dedicating four years of your life towards a single hard-hitting project? You know, I, th I think if we had known it was going to be four years, I just don't think either of us would have put our, uh, that much time into it. Um, just, I don't, you know, we were, what was I when we started that film? I must have been about 30 or 31. Sam must have been around 28, 29, I think. Um, and I think that it, had we known it was going to take four years and that half the film crew were going to live in my, our house and we were both <laughs> going to lose money and, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, our livelihoods by cricket boards was going to be um, uh, put in jeopardy uh, um, and that, you know, newspapers would be asking, you know, trying to run uh, hit pieces against us and all this sort of stuff. We might have thought, do you know what? Uh, we won't do that. But that's not really how it happened. You know, we were hoping to be able to go to Australia, center a story um, around the Australian India test series and come back um, and with, with a with a feature film. Uh, that would have been a little bit more uplifting, but, you know, maybe a little bit of IPL footage in there as well. And obviously what we ended up, it was quite clear early on that something was going on within cricket. Uh, you know, there were two major plot lines. We only really followed one of them because the other one fell apart. But, you know, we, I was told about the big three takeover about seven or eight months before it, it broke. Um, so we knew about that one very early on. And the other one that we found out, which I think I was told, I, I got a leak about, but it didn't make, we didn't get that much. It didn't make that much sense when we first heard about it. And then Sam was able to back it up, um, which was that Lalit Modi was basically um, talking to an Indian billionaire about taking over cricket and just buying all the best players. Um, and, and that, that fell apart uh, because Modi pulled out of that. But you know, those things, suddenly when you're, you're dealing with that sort of stuff, you realize that the topic, uh, you know, it's going to take a lot longer than, than, uh, than six months. And, you know, the amount of hours of footage we have, you know, we have incredible interviews with, you know, brilliant people in cricket that never even made, uh, the, and they're not even on the, on the uh, you know, on, in the movie, not even for a second. So uh, I can't remember how many hours of footage we actually got, but it was one of those documentaries where, partly because we didn't quite know what we were doing, but partly because the whole thing was unfurling in front of us at the same time. Uh, it, it just was what it was. Um, and it sort of went out of control a little bit. But uh, because of that, those sorts of documentaries end up being some of the most watchable ones because then, you know, there's, there's a very easy contained documentary. You could go back and do a uh, documentary on the 2005 Ashes now. And we know all the stories and we know how to put it together. And me and Sam could probably do that in, you know, five or six months and sell it and everyone would like it. A film like Death of a Gentleman, uh, it only happens because you're in the right place at the right time. I remember in 2013 saying to Sam, my biggest fear wasn't that, uh, it was that basically that all this stuff wouldn't come out and we wouldn't be able to like back it up in time. So I remember there was, there was a couple of really good films about the housing market that happened just before the crash. 
And you're just like, these documentary makers are like, hey, everyone, everyone should be paying attention. Something's not right here. And no one paid attention. And then all the documentaries about the crash afterwards were the ones that went absolutely ballistic. And I kept saying to Sam, if we release this film too early and then India, England, Australia take over the game in a year's time, uh, we're, no one's going to remember our film. and It's going to be for nothing. But luckily for us, it took us so long to put it together that we were right place, right time. What I really love about the film, and I've watched it quite a few times now, is the way you as a viewer feel like you're discovering it with you and Sam. It really does feel like your experience, you're going through time together with the production. And a few years on, how do you reflect on that documentary? Because do you, do you think it's almost come true? Um, what's your views reflecting on that? Uh, it hasn't come true. Um, the, I mean, the, the, I won't get into the nuttiness of um, ICC politics of the last little while, um, but it hasn't come true. D different things have happened, but the same basic problems are there. Uh, the only difference is that when we were there at uh, Australia, India and England were trying to take over the game, they've all taken a bit of a backward step. And it means that no one is running the game and no one wants to run the game at the moment, which means it just bumbles around from thing to thing. They brought in a, uh, a CEO who, as far as I'm aware, is still suspended for bullying um, staff or allegations of bullying staff. Um, and uh, he, his big thing was that he was going to make so much money for the ICC that everyone would be happy. Uh, but in, in the, he just made a lot of short term decisions, which hasn't. Um, uh, made a lot of people happy, especially those who work with grassroots cricket in certain places, um, but also people in the ICC weren't particularly happy with it. I think what happened was our film with a combination of people actually writing about this stuff um, basically spooked the, the, the big three boards and it's put us in this weird holding pattern at the moment where we're waiting to see what happens next. Uh, but the game is, it, there's, there's nothing to stop Elon Musk, who's a South African, suddenly going, do you know what? I really like cricket. I'm just going to buy all the best cricketers in the world and run my own test league, T20 league. Uh, six months a year, we'll do test. Six months a year, we'll do T20. Uh, I don't like one day cricket, so we won't play it anymore. There's absolutely nothing that could stop that. The ICC is not set up to, um, uh, to, to be involved in that. The same way that there's absolutely nothing to stop the, um, you know, the BCCI going, maybe we'll just do a six month IPL. And, and I think that's part of the problem at the moment, that no one is really in charge and that the game is floating. And I think that is probably when it becomes a little bit more dangerous um, uh, for the game. But at the same time, you know, uh, the Brazilian women's team is professional. Uh, the Thai women's team made it to the uh, uh, World Cup. The Japanese under-19 men um, played in, in that World Cup. There's some incredible things going on in cricket at the moment, but they're not being supported basically because... Uh, well, here's my favourite story about cricket. If you're an England player at the moment and you want to play in the Bangladesh Premier League, you have to go to England and say, can I play in the Bangladesh Premier League? And they say, yes, we love Bangladesh. You can go and play in Bangladesh. You're not, you're, we're not picking you at this time. Go and play. You go and play in the Bangladesh Premier League and then your Bangladesh Premier League team don't pay you. You can't go back to the ECB. If you go back to the ECB and say, they haven't paid me and I played a year ago, ECB go, oh, it's nothing to do with us. We can't be involved here. You go to the uh, Bangladesh Cricket Board, and this is before the board took over, to be fair, but when the owners were there, and they'd be like, oh, I mean, that's, this is between you and the owner directly. You go to the ICC and say, well, you, this is an ICC-sanctioned event, and I played in it, and I haven't been paid. And they go, well, we can't get involved with domestic tournaments. That is how cricket is currently run. And that is, that is as dangerous a situation as India, Australia, and England going, hey, everyone, we're going to take it over because we're, we happen to come from the three biggest markets. Um, and that's why we're better than everyone else. Um, and we're going to take over the game. So that's currently where we are. It's just a different kind of danger. Hmm. It's quite interesting. Though. I quite liked Joseph, not liked, but it's found interesting the, the idea of like Elon Musk coming in because that sounds quite similar to Kerry Packer and the World Series, which should have arguably helped revolutionise cricket in some ways, bringing in the white ball and, and sort of playing under lights and things like this. Do you think it could help even for a few years if some like Elon Musk did come in? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I should point out, I don't know if Elon Musk actually likes cricket. Yeah. <laughs> Other than the fact he's from South Africa, I'm just picking a random billionaire uh, who happens to have a tenuous link to cricket uh, by through his birth. Um, uh, look, Kerry Packer didn't want to... Kerry Packer wasn't trying to take over the cricket world. In fact, he, he sort of talked about the fact that he could have, and it wasn't his plan. He just wanted cheap content for his TV channel, right? And he wanted to watch, he was a cricket fan. He wanted to watch cricket better. And as you said, he brought in the white ball and, and he did a lot of things. Look, if we had a manic dictator, if Lalit Modi got up his rebel league, right? And he took over the game. 
it would mean that Bangladesh cricketers and West Indian cricketers and South African cricketers would be paid what they deserve to be paid for being Test match cricketers. Uh, they would be paid far more. They would be. They wouldn't. They wouldn't have to go from league to league to league because they'd just be the one major league. Um, uh, you know, there would be uh, the coaches wouldn't be in a situation. I mean, uh, you know, the, the situation for players is terrible. The situation for coaches in some of these T20 leagues is just abysmal. Uh, we would then have someone, if you think about it, part of the problem with the ICC is they don't really run cricket. Uh, so they can't really spread the game in the way that the NBA and the NFL do. NBA and NFL run their leagues and they promote it the way they want. ICC can't even pr promote cricket the way they want. They don't have any money to begin with. Uh, so there would be a lot of good things, but there would obviously be utterly horrendous things like they might cancel test cricket they might decide um that certain teams can't play it they might mean that test cricket is not nationality based which might improve the talent of test cricket but would take away maybe why a lot of us like it in the first place um and you know uh Lala Modi has a lot of interesting ideas that I certainly you know wouldn't want him, I wouldn't want him or someone like him being the sole arbiter of what is uh, good in cricket and what is not good in cricket but that's not to say that if you had a really good, try to think, um, if you had like maybe one of the IPL owners just went $5 billion and I could just take over cricket. Why don't I just do that? I have $5 billion and I will be able to get that money back through TV rights pretty easily anyway. Um, you could do some really interesting things with the game and perhaps it, uh, you know, it would benefit the game in the long run. But what other absolute batshit crazy things would they do that could absolutely ruin the game? And I think that might be the problem. Um, and then you also, when you have a rebel league like that, and we don't talk about these sorts of things that often, but they also cause a lot of problems further down the chain. So rebel leagues don't pay for development. So if you look at, uh, I think it was professional darts is one of the ones that's had a real problem with like developing young darts players and they, and darts isn't, isn't a national type of sport. So it doesn't matter as much if you only get a handful of really good darts players coming through. But if you're, if you've got this incredible super league coming through and it's not actually filtering through so that a kid in Derby or a kid in Cornwall um, gets access to an academy or gets access to, you know, um, coaches or whatever, then that might cause bigger problems, you know, going, uh, going further down. So look, it's, it, it could be absolutely brilliant for cricket. It could be the absolute worst thing for cricket. I think the biggest problem is that the way that cricket is run, it's just waiting for that to happen. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating to hear in some ways, but interesting as well. On campus and online. 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 This is URN. So, on to, to different topics, slightly more upbeat perhaps. Uh, at the beginning, we mentioned you've worked with some of the world's best teams, like Melbourne Stars, um, as an analyst. When working with a team, what's it like working with sort of highly emotional players when you're trying to tell them stats on how to bat or giving them ideas of how they should, should play? Uh, yeah, my son, for, when I was doing a lot of analysis work, my son would say things like, my daddy tells cricketers how to be better. And I said, never say that in front of a cricketer. <laughs> Don't say that in front of a cricketer. Um, uh, yeah, so look, every cricketer is different. I think that the cricketers over the age of 26 are very skeptical to a lot of this. Uh, they have, they've got to where they are. Uh, and, you know, you, you know, you're talking about Melbourne stars and St. Lucia stars, even, even, even cricket Scotland, you know, when I work with them, you're talking about players who um, have got to a certain level of the game. They think they know their game and they've never, a lot of them have never had to work with analysts generally. Um, and so they're just like, what, what do you think you can tell me that, that, uh, that I don't already know to get here? Um, with the younger players and the middle of the road players, they, they quite often buy in. A lot of them are trying to get to that next level. And for, you know, if, if you've got a player, especially a player under 23, and you're sitting with the coach while he's having coffee all the time, you've got your laptop open, you're both whispering to each other, that a player at 21 or 22 just goes, well, that guy must be important because otherwise why would coach talk to him all day, right? So you sort of, with the younger players, I never had any problem. With that middle tier of players, uh, you know, they, they, sometimes they come to you for a specific thing, or sometimes it's like, what have you got that might be able to help me? And then for the older players, I usually kind of stay clear with of them unless they come up to me specifically and go, uh, this is what I need to know. Can you help me with this? Uh, but you have, you know, completely different relationships with completely different players, the same as you do with coaches as well. And uh, a lot of it is, this is, it's a very early time. And if you look at the teams, I don't think Melbourne Stars had ever had a 
I think they'd had a video analyst before, but they probably hadn't had anyone doing data before. So Lucia had never had an analyst at, at all. Um, uh, uh, Scotland had had a coach do some analysis for them, but they already had a relationship with the coach. It was a little bit different. So if you look at those three teams that I went into, kind of starting from scratch. So it doesn't, it's no different than any new job. The only difference is that, you know, I might only be there for a month. Um, and so you're just trying to build relationships with people. You're trying to find how they want to hear information. You want to find what they are looking for. Um, and you're trying to sort of anticipate. A, a lot of it is, I think they feel, I think there's a feeling amongst some players that you don't need analysis. And so some of the players who feel like they do need it will be a little bit more shy about coming up. So I just spent most of my time in the bar on a laptop um, because the players are going to, you know, if you're in the hotel bar or the lobby, they're going to come past you and they'll come and say hi. And then they, they'll ask you what you're, you know, what you're looking at. And you just pretend that you're looking at something that might have something to do with them. And you sort of play the, sh the game, if you know what I mean. And next thing you know, it's a, it's, it's a full-blown conversation. But yeah, it's, um, it, it's a really, really interesting role. And we're at a very early point in it. I think it would be interesting to know what some of the uh, some of the people who you know, someone like Nathan Lehman and um, and, and the guys who've done it for five, ten years, who've been able to build a de and develop uh, relationships and how that works. Whether they still have the same problems that I have, um, or whether it's easier for them because they're usually working with teams for a lot longer. I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's Lehman, isn't it? Who works with Morgan at England and KKR and stuff, isn't it? So he's. He's been around for a while and Morgan always seems to listen to him. But um, have there been any players who perhaps have just flat out ignored something you've said to them and just walked away or almost just just left? Um, no, I mean, mostly a lot of the stuff I do is in team meetings. So it'd be quite weird if they got up out of a team. <laughs> um, uh, you know, they may have wanted to. They may not have been paying any attention to anything that I was saying. Um uh, no, no, I mean, look, there are players who disagree with you. Uh, there are players who don't necessarily uh, listen to what you have to say. Um, sometimes a lot of the analysis is not done directly with the players anyway. Like there's one particular player who I knew that it would be troubling if he heard it coming from me. Uh, not that we have a bad relationship. In fact, uh, we get on quite well, but I knew this particular thing. If a guy with a laptop told him this, he would he would be like, he, he would not handle it well. So I said to the coaches, look, if you want me to go up and tell him this, I will. But I honestly think this should come from a coach and so that he thinks it's a coach-led thing, not an analysis-led thing. And the player did get upset. He, he did. He, he stormed around and he wasn't happy. And then, you know, he went and thought about what had been said and realized that actually we probably, you know, had something there. Um, look, I've been told by players that I'm the reason we've lost uh i've been told by players that i'm the reason we won it's, <laughs> it's a it's an emotional it's a you know i really i remember you know i i made an error um with one of the teams i was working with where i had done an absolute ton of research on one team and we were, i think it was like a back-to-back -back or something game and i got hit at the nets so the nets had a hole in them and I was outside the net on the thing and like a ball came through the net, hit me on the ankle. My ankle blew up to twice the size. And, you know, it, uh, I, and I thought I pressed send before all that happened. And, and obviously I hadn't. And, but no one said anything, right? Like the coaches didn't say anything and the players didn't say anything. And then we lost that game. And then next time I had a meeting, like one of the players just went ballistic at me saying, I don't even know what it is you do. You didn't give us any research about the last game. And I'm going, what's he fucking talking about? I said tons of stuff through, right? And like, I defended myself really, really full on with him. And he's like, you didn't send anything. I'm like, how is that possible? Like I edited videos. I put together um, uh, like uh, sort of like batting heat maps. Um, I put like information packs together for the, for, the, uh, for, for the bowls and the batters, all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, I don't understand. And then I went back and I didn't realize that on a, you know, when you sent this is really nerdy stuff, but when you send something on WhatsApp through the, like a Chrome or a, a browser, if it doesn't send straight away, it doesn't stay there as like a draft. It like this just disappeared. Whatever browser I was using, just, it just disappeared. So I just thought that meant it had sent and didn't go back and check because I was bloody limping because of my stupid ankle. Um, and look, when you, when your team is losing, Everyone blames everyone. Like, 
it, it's, it's funny. I was trying to explain this to a journalist. This, this, this journalist didn't understand. He goes, oh, I was saying it's so much more high tension than ever writing a piece could be. And he was like, oh, that's because you've never worked for a newspaper. And I was like, yeah, mate, people make mistakes in newspapers and like, it's bad. That's not the same as what it is like to lose a close game. It is not the same as what it is like to not qualify for the, um, for the, uh, for the World Cup for Scotland. It's not the same as Melbourne Stars being ahead at an entire Big Bash final and falling apart in the last seven or eight overs, right? Like those sorts of things are, you know, I was part of St. Lucia when they had maybe one of the most dramatic losses um, in, in history in, in a T20 game, just an incredible game. And it's just like, everyone is upset and you sort of, you kind of have to know that going in and you get it. And so when someone says, you're the reason we lost, I'm just like, we lost and he has to blame someone, right? If it's, and I'd, I'd almost rather it be me than a young player who dropped a catch. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, you know, I've been around long enough. I've been called a lot of names on the internet. It's like, if a, if a, if a big name international player is saying I'm the reason we lost, that's all right. I'll still do my analysis next game. And next time he sees me, he'll grab me probably by the shoulder and go, mate, you know, I, I was just upset. And that happens. And it's fine. As I, I think a lot of it is just those building those relationships. But yeah, look, there have been players who have uh, never listened to anything I've said. There have been players who listen to everything I've said, probably even when they shouldn't. Uh, there have been players who have, you know, gone out of their way to badmouth me before my uh, to my next employers, knowing that I've got a future job. There have been other players who have like called up their head coach and said, "We can't win a T Twenty game unless this guy's on our staff." Do you know what I mean? Like. It's, it's a highly emotional thing. The one thing I realized is that, and, and this is over the years, and uh, cricketers are just incredibly competitive. Like professional athletes in general are incredibly competitive. They're incredibly competitive when you talk to them. Like in a general conversation, they are trying to beat you in conversation quite a lot of the times, right? Um, and we, we see these T20 leagues as, oh, he's just gone to some other random league and it doesn't mean anything to him the minute they're in a position where they can win the game and they don't, it means everything to them. The minute they've failed three games in a row and they're just like, this is bullshit. I'm going to have to go out and smash <laughs> the next game. And you, it is, it is like, I would assume there are very few places that are, that have that same sort of general tension. It's almost, it's almost like cricket itself. You have that incredible amount of tension. Then you have a lot of downtime. And in that incredible amount of tension, Everyone is upset. Everyone is rushing around. Everyone is panicking. Everyone is going in and then you don't have it. So I suppose, you know, uh, air traffic controllers and day traders and, you know, there are probably other uh, places that, and it, that sort of panic and the sort of tension and all that sort of stuff, it does bond you um, in a way that club cricket can never bond you, right? In that, that you know, it, it really does bring you together and having to play back-to-back -back games and all these sorts of things. So it's a... I don't think I don't think it's an easy environment to go into as an outsider the way that I did and I came in it completely cold like I thought solution wanted me to be like an assistant general manager type role where I would help with selection and I would feed stuff to the coach directly and Solution was such a shit show that like sec second day, the bowling coach said to me, you know, Roddy Estwick, this absolute legend of cricket, one of the best coaches I've ever seen from afar or up close. Uh, and Rihanna's um, school teacher, which is a fun fact. But um, Roddy Estwick is just like, uh, can, you, um, can you run the bowling meeting? And I was just like, you what? And I didn't say no, because I didn't know if I could say no. I didn't really know what my job was. And so that bowling meeting, and this was two days into being, working for a franchise ever, you know, basically I was a journalist the week before and I am running a meeting with Darren Sammy, Kyron Pollard, Mitchell McLennan, Muhammad Sammy, Rakim Cornwall, Keswick Williams, KS Ahmed, you know, like players who are, you know, some of the best players in the game, some of the most well-traveled players in the game, some of the most up and coming players. And it was just like, all right, how do I do this? And, uh, you know, I think, I think it would be very fair that the people who worked with me in St. Lucia were not, were not thinking that I was a great analyst, but I was completely dropped into this other world that I was not prepared for. And then you've got, for me personally, there are two other parts of me being an, an analyst. One is I had said things and written things about all the guys in this room, right? And 
I think I'm much better now a couple of jobs in. And, and the three teams we've talked about there are the three main teams I've worked with, but I've done heaps of other work with other teams and players, but I haven't been with them for tournaments. But now I'm in a situation to be like, you know, uh, is there anything you want to talk to me about that I've written that you're not happy about or that something I said on Crick Info once that you don't like? Um, and that that is that has come up. And I think that that would be a, a better situation for that. So I had that to begin with. The other thing is that a lot of analysts and Nathan Lehman is uh, a special case because he was a school coach um, and is a quite an outspoken person. But a lot of analysts, especially when you play in the India Premier League, uh, like IIT grads, right? You know, computer nerds. Uh, they're like 2021. They still call everyone sir. Absolute geniuses of what they do. But, you know, Kyron Pollard says, you know, uh, we should bowl this next ball out of our ass. And they're like, yeah, if, yes, sir. Right? And Raz are like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. Let's, let's talk about this. So you had a journalist who was also probably more vocal um, than they were used to from an analyst. Um, and you also had someone who wasn't used to doing it. So that first year of my, you know, my career was uh, where I basically learned to do it. And, and I didn't really get good at being an analyst um, 100% uh, from, a, from a working with teams perspective. The, off the other stuff, the learning of finding out all the information and everything, you know, I probably didn't become a good analyst until I'd done it for about a year, just because every situation was completely different. My situation at Seleucia was nothing like the one at Melbourne Stars. Melbourne Stars was nothing like Cricket Scotland. You know, you sometimes have a coach who'll just be like, I need four hours of your time, uh, meet me in this pub, um, you know, and, and they're just like, okay, tell me everything you know about T20 cricket. Like, that's easy, right? Me, I'll just talk for four hours at them. They'll have a notebook. And then a week later, they'll probably send me an email going, you said this, My our analyst hasn't, doesn't understand what you mean by this. What, what do you mean, right? That's so easy. That's a completely different situation than running a, a, group, a, you know, a team meeting with 20 people of different um, educational backgrounds, of a different language backgrounds, of different nationality, back, of different cultural backgrounds, uh, you know, all those sorts of things. And, and you really do have to sort of uh, factor all those things in. Um, and you've got to remember that we're talking about semi-amateur organizations. Melbourne Stars is, is, a, is a franchise for like a month and a half of the year. And then it doesn't exist for the rest of the year. So Lucia Stars is like a month of the year. Cricket Scotland is a semi-professional cricket setup who is trying to become professional, right? And, even, and, and to be fair... I also worked, you know, uh, with um, consulted with uh, Royal Challengers Bangalore, and they were amateur, right? So, you know, they didn't have a proper setup. So you you're learning your job in an environment where you're working in an unprofessional place, where there's no proper structures in place, where your role definition isn't there, and you're having to deal with a kid from Guyana. Um, uh, who probably never went to school after 14 because he was the best cricketer in, in his district. Um, and you're having to deal with a head coach who played cricket for Australia and has a PhD in whatever. Like the, the difference of those sorts of things is just so endlessly massive. And it's very hard to do in an amateur or semi-amateur environment, which a lot of these are. It sounds like an absolute nightmare, like a cheese sort of nightmare. <laughs> the situation you were describing there about going into a room saying, oh, do you mind doing the coaching for us? Uh, the coaching, yeah, cheers. That, oh, that, 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 oh, that makes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a nightmare about that tonight. You mentioned <laughs> a lot of the negatives about being an analyst, an analyst, sorry. Is there one moment where you can just pinpoint, show us the YouTube clip and go, that's me. I said, do that. And it just worked perfectly. Is there a moment like that for you? Oh, yeah. Uh, to be honest, it actually started before I was hired. You know, you would be, you would chat to, a, a, you'd write a piece on Crick Info and a player would follow you on Twitter, right? And the next game you're watching and something would happen and you'd be like, wait a minute, is it possible? And then you get like a direct message. You've never talked to this person before in your life. You get a direct message. You go, did you see the game? Yeah. I did that thing that you talked about. <laughs> I know. What? And, you know, and, and it'd be completely random, that sort of situation. I had, I think my best game as an analyst was uh, the Melbourne Stars final versus um, uh, Melbourne Renegades, where f 
we played against the Renegades twice. So a lot of the problem is you just don't play against these teams that much. By that stage, we played against them twice. I had spent the last couple of years in Melbourne uh, covering the Big Bash for ESPN. So I'd seen the Renegades play a lot. I knew I knew their players. I knew their style. I knew what they would do. Aaron Finch is a bit unpredictable as a captain. But generally, even I knew that. Do you know what I mean? Like I knew how, how he would think. And I planned out absolutely brilliantly. And if you have a look, I'm trying to remember the score. We maybe had them. Um, five or six for 80, right? And of that, I remember a friend of mine, uh, I was in the Caribbean um, because I was doing that one remotely with them. Um, And I was uh, working with TalkSport while doing the the Melbourne Stars job hilariously. And a friend of mine was watching it and he was at the ground and he was going, oh, this wicket, you know, and he was saying, what did you tell him for this, for this batter? And I'll be like, I told him this. And then it would happen. They would do it and we get the wicket. And it just kept happening like time after time again. Uh, and we cut right through their top order, basically following my plan. Uh, and he's like, this must be like the best day of your life. I said, I cannot believe that this is <laughs> Because, you know, through the year, it's even hard for the team, if you know what I mean. There's, it's, cricket doesn't have a good culture of teams sitting in a room and looking at video together. It doesn't have a good culture of sitting down and going, okay, the analyst has said this. Us as coaches think this. What do you think as players, right? Even when they do it, it's very quick and it, do you know what I mean? Whereas I think for the final, I think they went all the way through my notes. They went all the way through the videos and they just went, okay, Jared has said this. We back this up with video. Let's go with this. And that all the players knew every plan going in, right? That is not the case in a lot of these games. And it all worked. And the one thing that they got wrong was they didn't hold back leg spin for the death when um, Cooper and um, Dan Christian were batting, which meant that, Dan Christian and Cooper just locked, knocked out the last couple of overs of leg spin. We had two leg spinners, so we easily could have held one or two overs at the end. And they knocked that out knowing that in the last four overs, they're two of the best players of pace bowling in the world and they were going to go ballistic. And they did. And they still didn't get a big score, but they got enough runs to get them to a point. And then the only thing that they, uh, Melbourne Stars that I disagreed with with the, the team setup was we went in with an extra bowler, which I didn't think we needed against the Renegades. And in that particular game... Uh, it meant that our batting was probably the most shallow it had been all season, which meant our two openers, Ben Dunk and Marcus Stoinis, probably just played within themselves a little bit, which was absolutely fine until they both went out. (laughs) Um, And then the collapse happened and we were too far behind the rate and uh, Renegades have a brilliant uh, death bowling lineup uh, that season. Uh, And we lost the game and it was like the two thing, like that was probably, I felt like that was the game I was listening to the absolute most. And the two things that didn't quite follow were the two things that cost us the game. So that kind of shows you how perfect it can go together. And you feel like, great, everything's working. And then that happens. But there's been other games when absolutely nothing I have said I've, uh, has been listened to. And the team has just gone great. And you just, you still feel incredible. Like at, that, at a certain point, it just doesn't matter. Like, um, you know, being involved with my first team win for St. Lucia was just such a huge thing. Um, you know, Melbourne Stars going from last and qualifying for the finals in that year, winning the semifinal against the best team, Hobart. And then, you know, Scotland qualifying for the World Cup. They're just, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter if the team doesn't listen to me in that point or if they're listening to me, but listening to things I said a month earlier. Um, it's just an incredible thing to be part of. One, I'm a bit of a kit nerd. Do you get the kits as an analyst? Do you get like the full tracksuit training kit? No? Oh. We get the full training kit. Ah, nice. Yeah. So, um, in fact, uh, so I still, I work out in my Scotland kit because it's really good um, uh, training kit. St. Lucia kit fell apart, um, sadly. <laughs> um, but I did. my wife does think that part of the reason I started working with teams was to collect kit. So I don't know if you know, but like, I think I have... I know 80 or 90 um, uh, cricket shirts. Um, I probably have more than that actually, but let's not, <laughs> let's not tell my wife that. But, um, and so for me, it was, a, it was a really big deal to be able to, 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 to you know, to be able to do that and, um, and to get them. Um, but yeah, no, uh, we don't get a team shirt, um, but the teams are pretty good as well. And, and as you go up in the levels, like um, uh I probably, you know, if I'd been out with Melbourne Stars, I probably would have been able to say, can you get me some shirts for my kids with their names on the back and all that sort of stuff. Um, I haven't really been in a situation to be able to get that sort of stuff. But, you know, hopefully if I, uh, I, I can do that in the future, which will make my kids feel really cool as well. Um, also, I'll get myself a shirt, obviously. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't think I really need, uh, I, don't, I don't think I really need any more free kit. But uh, 
Uh, but, or, I'll be honest, here's another good one that you don't know. As a journalist, you spend a lot of time in cricket nets, um, indoor cricket nets, because I have a lot of press conferences and stuff in there. And I have stolen a lot of kit uh, from those sorts of places uh, before as well. But, uh, but that's just between us. Yeah. I can just imagine you walking out with a pair of stumps in either hand. Just no. <laughs> from in there. I don't think I've taken stumps. Uh, I've certainly taken shirts and shorts. Yeah. Um, and occasionally maybe the odd cricket ball, perhaps. In fact, I yeah. tell you what, I've got a cricket ball from Ireland's first test. So they were doing, um, they were doing throwdowns around the boundary. So it's not, it's not. I don't think it's obviously not a match-used ball. They were doing throwdowns around the boundary, and obviously someone hit the ball into the boundary. And as I was walking around, I saw it and just went, "Well, that's mine." <laughs> I was literally wearing my Island Test shirt yesterday. I'm gutted. <laughs> we're on campus and we're online. We're online. University. Radio. Nottingham. Yeah. Um, so, Jared, you've done a lot of work with ABC Cricket Coverage, which is sort of the Australian version of TMS, as well as TalkSport. What's it like working with the commentary team there and how, how are your experiences? Yeah, it's um, uh, very different. Talk, uh, TalkSport and ABC were very different. ABC was very, it's a very amateur setup, sadly, despite the fact that for a long time they were probably the best cricket broadcast in the world. Um, they kind of let it decay a little bit. Um, they didn't really know what they wanted or how to make it happen. Um, talk sports, very different talk sport took it very, very seriously. Um, I've got a big whiteboard in my office and the, the head of talk sport cricket came here and said, draw up your ideal plan for the best radio cricket broadcast you can come up with. Um, and then we, he sort of took that plan and, you know, talk sports won two awards in the first three years and were nominated for a Sony award in the other one. So, uh, clearly from a broadcast point of view, talk sport, um, has taken it and run. Um, and what we wanted to do with talk sport was there was no point us trying to be anything like TMS. So my plan was, uh, to make it very cricket heavy, um, and to make it a lot more analysis driven and, and hilariously, I, I did, I thought there was, once they were going with Neil Manthorpe, I thought, well, I'm not going to be a commentator, so I won't get a job there. Um, so, you know, just cashed my, um, consultancy check, um, very quickly. And then they sort of came back and said, you know, uh, cause I thought I, I kind of set it up. So I thought they might go and get someone from Crickfizz to go on air with them, which I thought was a really interesting thing. And in the end, they paid me to say Crickfizz cricket stuff on air and also you know make fun of goffy occasionally um uh so it's it's a it, it's a really really interesting thing because you get to see players in a different light but you also get to see them trying to work out a new job if that makes sense um so i was with mark butcher really when he first did um commentary um ball by ball commentary for talk sport sorry butch but you were terrible um and to see how much he's mastered that since then and really worked on it. Um, and I still think he can get a lot better. I think he can be one of the best radio commentators in the world um, if he really put his mind to it. Uh, if he wasn't playing golf all the time. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think um, I think that it's it's really interesting to, like someone like Matt Pryor, I remember Matt Pryor taking me aside early on, like one of our first series. And he said, oh, I would, uh, you're the kind of journalist I absolutely hated during my career. And he said, but it's quite fun to work with you, isn't it? <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, you sort of, you do sort of get that, um, uh, you do sort of get that side of it. But yeah, no, look, it's a really interesting thing. I think with TalkSport, we tried to do stuff with radio cricket commentary that hadn't been done before. And some of it's worked and some of it hasn't. And we're continually sort of pushing that uh, forward. Um, and TMS is almost a completely different um, style. So look, I really enjoy commentary. Um, it is... Uh, especially for me, like they literally, they're paying me to do what I would do in my lounge room on my own or what I do do in the press box um, for someone else, which is literally, that's interesting. I might look that up and then make a smart ass comment about it. Um, and now people pay me to do that. So uh, it's quite, it's quite fun to do. It's a very, very good medium. And um, you know, they, you know, the one thing that you don't really get to do on TV that much, and, and I, haven't, I haven't really worked that much on TV, but you don't really get to tell stories. It's great. One, one of the great things is like uh, TalkSport would say, we've got 40 minutes to fill. Do you and Neil Manthorpe want to talk about cricketers from the 1930s? Well, of course we fucking <laughs> Of course we do. You know, and we're like, like, we'll come up with the most obscure cricketers that no one's ever heard of. And you get to tell stories for 40 minutes. And that is where I think radio and, and you know, it's why I like podcasts as well. And even YouTube allows that sort of thing, that sort of storytelling. For me, 
it, whether the analysis is the fun bit because you get to find out the, the thing. I like to find out things that people don't know. But that the really interesting thing is then how you make that into a story. Yeah, no, that sounds very interesting. I'm sure me and Don would, would have a ch- love to have a chance as well, as, a, as, as well as a lot of other guys at URN. We'd probably want to get into careers in sports broadcasting, journalism. So what tips might you have for, for us who might want to get into that field of work? I always have the same tip. Do what other people are not doing. There is literally a, a thousand holes. Uh, the Guardian, if, if, you look, if you look at it as from a sports broadcast, uh, sorry, sports media perspective, The Guardian basically perfected this sort of English style of literature, sports writing, what, 30, 40 years ago, maybe, um, probably late 80s. Um, and very little in sports writing has changed since then. There is masses of things that you can do uh, when it comes to covering sport um, from a writing perspective, from a broadcast perspective as well. You know, video, uh, as far as I'm aware, none of the major newspapers in the UK are doing video essays. If they're not doing video essays in five years time, they are, you know, uh, bankrupt would be my thought, right? Uh, You have podcasts again. Every podcast is interviewed like this one. Um, or it's current events. Oh, what happened last week? Oh, we're going to do our, our jokey banter, uh, me and my mate. And hopefully enough people will listen to it over three years time that we can get a sponsor, right? Narrative podcasts, uh, a huge thing, you know, uh, serialized podcasts, uh, series based podcasts, all these different things that you can do. Uh, you know, we've got, you know, the uh, two of the most interesting people getting involved, uh, was two of the most interesting groups getting involved with cricket at the moment. Uh, the dealt with group on TikTok who do the cricket TikTok over there and the group and uh, the We Cricket group on YouTube, uh, the two guys there that have their, uh, their cricket channel. No one in the media would know who any, and no one in the cricket media would know who these blokes are. They could stand next to most of them and no one would know who they are, right? And yet, you know, We Cricket has, I don't know, 250,000 subscribers. I don't know how many people follow, dealt with um, on, um, on TikTok, but I, I think they've got a pretty healthy uh, group of followers there as well. There are, you know, I made my career, if, if you look back on it, ESPN hired me, we went out to the, do the Ashes, Sam and I, and we worked out there was going to be about 45 to 47 working journalists covering that series, right? How the hell was anyone going to read what we wrote when there were that many people out there? So we were like, okay, why don't we just make a funny video series? We literally stood outside or stood in the ground, filmed on our phones, uploaded it, and I made fun of players in the press conference, right? So... And then the next step of that was we then interviewed the crowd and we made fun of the crowd a little bit. The next step of that was getting the journalists on and we made fun of the journalists, right? That was in 2010 we started that. Um, the last 11 years, that, that is basically what got me into the industry. That took me from being a fringe freelancer to being a part of the industry. Now, imagine if I had told someone uh, uh, you know, who had worked in... Uh, cricket writing for 20 years i'm going to get into the industry by making these random videos where i make fun of players they wouldn't have understood you and they wouldn't have got it and that's a lot of the problem is that you have to find that niche yourself what is it that the industry is not doing that it should be doing what stories are not being covered what angles are not being covered what styles of writing are not being covered what styles of media is not being covered and you work out how to make that work and you put your your time and your effort into that and i think that too often universities when they train people they train people on how to do what has already happened 5 10 15 20 years before it's like if the amount of people that come out of university and basically send me a piece that mike selvey could have written so it's like that's great mike selvey's already written this piece and he played for england and has been writing on cricket for 35 years what's your angle why have you written this what can you bring to the table what can you do that is something different to someone else? And uh, too often, I think universities as a, as a general entity, this isn't just media, but certainly in media, they produce cookie cutter things. What you guys should really be thinking about now is how on earth do we cover the hundred completely differently than someone else? How do we cover test matches completely differently than someone else? There is still no, like, I mean, you know, who's going to be the next big Twitch um, person in cricket? Do you know what I mean? Uh, all those sorts of things are available um, to people. And unfortunately, the cricket, well, fortunately for you guys, but unfortunately for cricket media, it is such a slow moving, dim witted beast, right? That, uh, that the people who work in it don't do anything. And English media in general is just incredibly slow moving when it comes to this sort of stuff, which is great for you. 
because it means that you could literally just go and follow great sporting trends in American sport, in Australian sport, in New Zealand sport, in Spanish sport, wherever, and bring them across and just be like, hey, look at this new thing that we made up, <laughs> right? And I think that, uh, I, and I really think that once you sort of get known as one sort of thing, you're in the industry and you can, you know, sort of tweak that and make a career out of it. It may not be the career that you want. You might want to write the big Michael Atherton times pieces and you might end up being, you know, the greatest TikTok maker for the, 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 the cricket times I've ever had, right? But is that, I, I don't think that matters. I think what matters is that you are still covering the sport the way you that you want to cover it uh, and you're still bringing your intelligence to it and your view on it and those sorts of things. And I think that that's all you can do. If you're trying to be a shit version of someone else, you'll be a shit version of someone else. Um, and that is, you, then you need great contacts or a lot of luck. You don't need as much luck if you are creating stuff that no one else has ever created before. Those are some, we've had a lot of advice from a lot of people. Sometimes it's just keep on persevering, but that is genuine great advice. And to everyone listening at URN, I hope you're taking notes because this, Jared has made it, it's fair to say. We, we, we'd be foolish not to ask you. We're England fans, both of us, me and Toby. The World Cup coming up, the Ashes coming up. If we were to put money on one side to win the T20 World Cup and one side to win the Ashes, let's assume the World Cup is happening, who would you put the money on? Uh, World Cup, I'd have to look at the odds to see what I was getting. Um, but <laughs> I think if the World Cup, I'd probably put my money on the West Indies. I think that they still, I think they play T20 cricket in a way that no other team can play it. And I think that's why they won the last World Cup. Um, I don't think their bowling is quite as strong as it was in the last World Cup. Although, uh, with, if Sunil Narayan gets back to any kind of form, they didn't even have him in the last World Cup, right? Um, so I think they have the ability to basically take games away from teams. Um, and they are the mo- their players are the most experienced T20 players in the world. That's, all, that's what they do, right? Um, whereas, you know, Ben Stokes has to learn T20 cricket playing the IPL and then he doesn't play for a couple of years and England rest him and he's going to turn up at a World Cup having played a couple of games for Rajasthan and Kyron Pollard's going to turn up with 500 games of you know, you know, uh, experience. So I'll probably go with them. Uh, the Ashes, I'll probably go with Australia just because it's at home. I don't think there's a lot between the two teams, realistically. Um, and generally, if the teams are quite evenly matched, you would back, um, uh, you would back them. But uh, if England weren't spending a lot of time watching what, ooh, uh, if England weren't spending a lot of time watching what happened with um, uh, the uh, uh, Indians, um, I'd be shocked, and I think they'll be taking some of those um, some of those things in. Uh, guys, I've got to head off because I've got a uh, an early job interview apparently has come through on my phone. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'll go with Australia. But I'm going to head off. Uh, thanks for having me on, and good luck with everything. Oh, cheers! Thanks, guys. Sharon. Thank you so much. Cheers, guys. Bye. DJ, this is URN University Radio Nottingham. That was Jared Kimber talking to us uh, on Wednesday. And it's fair to say he ended it in the most Jared Kimber way possible. Thank you so much for your time. It just was unfortunate that he had a job interview that came up a bit faster than he expected. Uh, no one to blame there. Um, it was just a great interview. It's great to talk to someone who knows so much about cricket. He talked about players from the 1930s, um, about how he can talk about that. And it was just so fascinating to hear about the ICC, about the analyst and even going into what makes a good journalist and sports media broadcaster. And I hope everyone listening on URN or anyone who's interested in going into that media, into media, sports media especially, will take notes from that. Toby, what was your favourite moment, sir, from that, that sort of cut short interview? Yeah, I, I thought it was all really interesting. I, I watch him on YouTube, so him talking about that I found really interesting. Um, his sort of Trent Bridge memories as well, which we both love to hear. Um, and him, him stealing stumps. From <laughs> from cricket matches, which aren't actually stumps, um, but but still the memorabilia and shirts and things. Are, it's quite quite interesting one, and just generally his his talk on on being an analyst was always really interesting. I think. Why right, you Dom, your favourite part? I was so fascinated by the an- analytics of it all. I'd never really heard about that side of the game before. Um, I hope neither the um, sort of listeners we've got at the moment. Um, I thought it was fascinating. Uh, I really love when analysts pay off but I also like 
I was, this is my big problem with F1 and things like that is sometimes players can become too, we must follow analytics. And I think cricket is that perfect balance of we can go for it, but we can also not go for it. And I really enjoyed that. I found it really interesting to hear from an analytics point of view why we should sometimes go for that. Um, Toby, you created a TikTok account. And apart from liking a lot of James Charles's stuff, I don't know what you've been doing. So what have you been up to? Mate? Um, so at the moment, I'm just putting out headliners. Um, we'll also be putting out videos of me, maybe Dom as well, talking to the camera, giving sort of, if you guys send us in ideas, questions you want us to answer, so the short, quick one-minute videos it will be, uh, maybe a, a few sort of team ideas of if you have one player from every nation or players beginning with A or whatever it might be, loads of fun, just funny content that hopefully you guys will enjoy and that we'll enjoy making. Very much what Jared was saying about if you want to go into sports media, you've got to try something different. And I think we've already taken that on board before the episode <laughs> ended. Um, that's quite quick for us. Um, I'd like to thank Jared again for giving us so much of your time. Very busy man, as you can literally hear. So thank you, Jared, for your time there. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So please do that. You can also share it and review it with your friends. It really does help us get noticed. Thank you so much for your time. Toby, go well. Cheers. And go well to you as well. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>